Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. My life as a farm news broadcaster had many days that started early and finished late. One day in particular, back in 2006, holds some special memories because I was part of a delegation that went to Iraq. The story revolves around a lady who's my guest. She worked with several elements of the U.S. government to put the trip together, and for one day, a delegation led by U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Mike Johans was in the U.S. Embassy in Camp Victory right there in Baghdad. There's a lot more before and after for Terry Moore, who is now Vice President of Communications for the American Farm Bureau Federation, I'll let her expand out a resume that's still growing. Terry, how are you? I'm doing great. It's so nice to talk to you, Ken. Well, it's a pleasure once again to talk to you. You know, when I met you, it was in the early days of uh, former Nebraska Governor Mike Johan's time as Secretary of Agriculture. He began that in uh, early 2005. You'd been a reporter and anchor in Lincoln. Is that right? That's right. I actually spent 10 years as a broadcast journalist before moving on to work for the Nebraska State Patrol and then on to the governor's office. And so you were in the governor's office when he was there, and that was your link to him. And uh, what jobs did you hold in the governor's office? I served as his director of communications. So it was aligned pretty well that if he went to Washington as secretary of agriculture, he knew you, he could trust you, and he could bring you with him. I don't know about trusting me, but apparently he did because he did indeed take me along. <laughs> now, weren't you a young mother at the time? I was. And in fact, I initially turned down the job. And then a crazy thing happened. My parents, who live in Minnesota, said, well, if you want to take the job, we'll come help with the kids for a while. So my no went to a yes, and it became a family affair. Wow. So did all of you move to Washington, D.C., your parents, your husband, you, kids? That's right. Wow, that is something. That's uh, Most people don't commit that much. You must have very dedicated parents. I do indeed. They're fantastic. And they stayed about six months while we got settled in. And, and then my husband stayed home for a while with the kids. So that was a blessing also. Wow. How did you select them as parents? Was this an early on thing in your life? Yeah. <laughs> if only everyone could be so lucky. Yes, I think that's true. Well, when you got to USDA, that is a monstrous agency. And to be a person who comes in with an appointee and head of uh, work for him, I don't know the specific title you had initially, but how was it to wade into that bureaucracy? It was fascinating, Ken. I went in as director of communications and stayed in that capacity and also took on the title of senior advisor to the secretary. But it was fascinating. And it's where I truly developed a deep down love for working for America's farmers and ranchers. 
I will tell you, USDA is not the political institution so many federal departments are, where you have a big, oh, I don't want to say a rift, but it's certainly a divide between the political appointees and the career public servants. At USDA, it really is more of a team effort. And and it's head down, work hard, serve the men and women who are feeding America. I have to agree with you on the people that I've known beginning in the mid-1970s at USDA. I think I've interviewed every Secretary of Agriculture and, and traveled with a few of them uh, between then and my retirement back in 2020. But it was those people uh, that were really the interface with us, with the media, uh, and with the, the farm organizations, I think one gentleman, Larry Quinn, who was there for an extended period of time. And I think he was, uh, perhaps instrumental, uh, in putting my name forward. Uh, at least I've always accused him of that, threatened him about that, uh, to go to Iraq with you guys. You bet. Larry was a fantastic colleague and I couldn't have agreed more with the recommendation. And that's why we reached out to you. And it was really about documenting something, you know, such an important trip. Something that I think very few people realize is the extent to which the U.S. military, really, but the entire leadership believed that agriculture could be key to success in Iraq. I have told some stories about Iraq to people that they never thought of of putting this together. It was the cradle of civilization. It's where agriculture began 10,000 years ago, if not longer. And the story of the Babylonians is the reason they developed written languages. They had to keep track of the records because they were keeping track of the crops that they were buying and selling. And agriculture and Iraq have a huge overlap. There's no doubt about it. Part of our mission there was building what we called um, PRTs, Provincial Reconstruction Teams. Those were ag experts going in to help Iraq learn how to restore their agriculture, not only so they could feed themselves, but also to give young men work to do, something to occupy their minds in a worthwhile endeavor to keep them from becoming radicalized. You know, one of the things you just said, almost as a contradiction, we went in there to teach them how to rebuild their agriculture when they're the ones who figured out how to irrigate out of Tigris and the Euphrates as well, and to be able to do all these things that basically brought agriculture and people from nomadic to crop growing and then into civilizations. But the people there, as I heard the story as we were there, that had been the farmers had also had to become soldiers. And many, many of them had been killed. So there almost was no one who knew the basic structure of how their agriculture worked. That's right. And their infrastructure had decayed and crumbled and become overgrown and to the point where the first step was really reestablishing. When uh, we began this process, and I, I want to do it partly because I want to remember it, in the same detail and same emotion that I had. I got a call one day when I was at WHO radio and it was from Terry. And she said, uh, we have a uh, mission to Iraq with the U S secretary of agriculture. And if I got this right, you were inviting me 
and I had two hours to make up my mind. And That's probably right, something like that. That was the story. And so, of course, the first person I called was my wife, and she has given me the blessing to go many times. Uh, I even went uh, into Russia right after Chernobyl and was there just a uh, hundred miles or less from the reactor. I remember that we went to Russia and we came that close to Chernobyl. And uh, so she gave me the green light and I turned to my program director at WHO, which basically overwhelmed him when I said, I've got an offer to go to Iraq. And he said, well, I can't say no. And so I took that as yes. And I called <laughs> back <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm in. And you said, um, fly to Washington, be there, I think, three days later. And when you get to Washington, let me know what your flight is. When you get to Washington, I'll call you and tell you what to do from that point on. And this is all hush-hush at this point. Is that accurate? No, that's accurate. Yeah, we may just swear not to say a word about it, because obviously there were security concerns with a member of the cabinet going into a war zone. So, yeah, it was very hush-hush until the day of. So I landed in Washington. By the way, I had been on a couple of trade missions through Andrews Air Force before. And uh, I went there at your direction at the right time. I stayed with my daughter. And uh, when I got there, I'll tell you a story you may not know. I got there just at the same time that President Bush was flying in in his helicopter and departing on the presidential 747. So they let me in to the terminal area, and uh, they said, now, the president is coming in. You cannot leave here. And I said, well, may I take pictures out the window? Sure. So I walk over to the window. I have my camera here. I'm one of the best photographers in radio. I don't know a lot of people know that or not. And I set myself up, and I noticed that the glass on that window looked like it was at least two inches thick, and I assume bulletproof. Here comes the helicopter, the presidential helicopter, and it landed. The president immediately got off, saluted by the Marines, the whole bit. He takes the 50 yards over to Air Force One. He goes up the gangplank, and uh, he uh, turns around and waves to nobody in particular there, but he waved, and he stepped onto the plane, and it immediately started rolling. They just jerked that uh, uh, jetway away. It's just a ramp at that time outside. And then they shut the door after they were moving and they were gone. But the interesting thing, Terry, is that as it pulled away, me thinking it was the only thing on the runway, behind the wheels of that aircraft was another jet, which was a little business jet. And that was what we were going to ride in. So our plane was not as big in my estimation, as the wheels on the president's jet as he left. <laughs> that may well be true. <laughs> uh, now, you showed up about this same time, right? Right. And so this group of us, I believe there were eight plus two or three crew members took off. That sounds that right. about accurate? I think so. One of the people with us that was... Everybody was interesting, but one of the people with us that was most interesting was Colonel Dan Kane, and he was an uh, Air Force pilot. Apparently in 2001, he had literally been over Washington, D.C. in an F-16 armed 
to shoot down anything that was uh, flying. And uh, he was a liaison with the White House at the time and a charismatic guy. I mean, I was just in awe in his presence. And he was directing us, helping us to get through this trip. And you and he worked pretty closely together. Do you want to comment on him? I'd love to. Um, he was Colonel Kane at the time. He has now risen in the ranks. He was a White House fellow serving at USDA and was a tremendous advisor to us. Um, we remain in touch to this day. And I have to say that I'm comforted by the fact that he's among our leadership in, in some very sensitive areas of the military. As we um, headed out, we flew to Shannon, Ireland and refueled. And then from Shannon, Ireland, we flew on to Injerlik Air Force Base right outside uh, Adana, Turkey. Am I right so far? Correct. And we had just a few hours there uh, to uh, walk around, eat a meal, and then they took us to our quarters. And uh, they told us they would uh, knock on our door very, very early in the morning, I want to say like 3.30 a.m., and that we would then, we would go back to the flight line and we would get on an aircraft that would take us into Baghdad. That's right. How were you on the upside-down effects of being able to try to do your job when your body is telling you it's one time and your clock's telling you it's another? Oh, I got pretty used to that. We traveled to 13 countries in all different time zones. And <laughs> Secretary Johans was the kind of guy who wasn't going to waste a minute. So while sometimes government delegations take a breather when they're switching time zones or, or on long distance trips, it was always go, go, go for us. So, so that was less, less of an impediment, really kind of wrapping our minds around the realities of where we were, you know, and maybe you're getting to this, Ken, but I certainly will never forget the bomb going off, not what, 500 feet away when we finally did land in Baghdad. Going into Baghdad, when we went to the flight line, the aircraft we got on was a C-17, and that is the extremely large transport aircraft. And the thing that stuck in my mind, first of all, was how big it was. The second one was that it was full of munitions and spare parts for Humvees, and we had to sit along the sides on these canvas seats. There were only three true seats in the aircraft, a jump seat, uh, a pilot, and a co-pilot. Secretary Johan sat in the jump seat, and the pilot was about 30 years old, had kind of a scruffy mustache, and the co-pilot was a young lady who told me she was 23, and she had a cute little ponytail. And it hit me as to how young people are that are in war. I was just shocked at how young they were, but yet, you know, they're flying this multi-million dollar aircraft, and they're going to go into the belly of the beast, so to speak. That probably unnerved me as much as anything. You have quite a memory. I have to say, I don't remember it in that much detail. Well, those people stick in my mind. And, of course, you and I were kind of shoulder to shoulder. Everybody, you know, had each other's back. We were all a group. Uh, Secretary Johans complimented me afterwards 
by these words. He said, Kenroot was embedded with us. And I had to define to people on a few speeches that was not embed with, but embedded with means that you are working together and you all are on the same page so that the mission can be accomplished with a news media person involved. And he trusted me. And I guess I should talk about him for a moment as we are flying to Baghdad here and it's coming daylight. He is a very interesting man. His principles are so strong. He's an Iowa farm boy. His, uh, his goals in life and his determination have been so clear. And when he got the call from the president, he said, yes, I'll be secretary of agriculture. And he really didn't have to do any of that at all. He could have been quite comfortable staying in Nebraska, as far as I could tell. I think that's right, Ken. And I, I couldn't agree with you more that there are few elected leaders with a clearer compass than Mike Johans have, has. It was a true honor to work alongside him and to see how he treated people. I will tell you that for the rest of my career, I have taken the lessons I learned, many leadership lessons that I learned from him and tried to apply them in, in my life and in my leadership. He, he truly was extraordinary as a secretary and as a senator and as a governor. Well, he knew what he wanted to do. And um, on this trip, he was one of actually several cabinet members who went over, rotated through into Iraq. But in this case, it was us and ours. And we really weren't too interested that uh, Condoleezza Rice or other people had been in a similar path of maybe a few weeks before. We came into Baghdad and there's no windows in that airplane. They're just except in the doors. And so we uh, had the doors open and uh, they passed out black jackets and helmets to us. They then escorted us across the runway inside. And uh, then they put us in a helicopter with a live gunner. And they flew us from the uh, Air Force base area, the military base area, over the city and flew us up to the embassy. And we're coming into the embassy and I'm looking down and there are all these little trailers setting around one of Saddam's palaces that has been made into the embassy. And these old trailers have these blast barriers that are about nine foot high concrete that can be placed with a forklift up against the trailers. And there's one of them that's got a little bend to it, like 20 degrees. So you can squeeze through, open the door and get into your trailer. And that's where the embassy personnel were staying. However, many of them said they had no protection on top of their trailer. So they were staying, even sleeping in their offices inside the embassy. And I got to realizing real quickly how fast this was all coming together and how dangerous the people there thought the situation was. So we landed helicopter. We got out. Our security team, Terry, was Blackwater. Did that, did that uh, ring a bell with you at the time? Uh, no, I was pretty focused just on our mission and purpose for being there. Blackwater was not a household name at the time, but Blackwater was a, a group that had people that were ex-military, et cetera, and they were all armed. Uh, some of the armor and armament showing, most of it not. And they never looked at us. 
they only looked at everything else. And I thought, well, they don't need to look at us. We're not a problem. Everything else can be the problem. And we just had gotten into the embassy, and one of them said, we've got small arms fire. Go to the interior hallway. And dumb me, I said, what? And I heard that machine gun. I went to the interior hallway immediately and uh, realized we were being shot at at that moment. It, It was certainly a reality check for all of us. I don't think any of us was naive about what we were walking into. It was a war zone after all. But, yeah, that certainly brought it home very directly. And then we started meeting people and getting oriented and doing some meetings we were going to. And I was trying to get ready to feed stories back. And, of course, we're running nine hours ahead of central time. So I had plenty of time to be able to do so, you know, as they were coming into the early morning. In fact, I did early morning radio at midday from there uh, and then worked up the rest of my stuff as we left later on to go to another area where I couldn't feed. But as we hopped through this embassy, it was a beautiful place, a very beautiful place. Everything they said about Saddam Hussein, you know, making everything for him, uh, truly, it was remarkable. Terry, I found that to be uh, almost like a museum as we walked through it. Yeah, it truly was. When you uh, began doing meetings in there with people, what was your reaction to the people who had guts enough to be on the American side and to come in and sit down with us, even though it was pretty clear they would be known as to who they were and potentially have consequences? I have nothing but the utmost respect for the people who both took on official roles and on the American side and for the Iraqi officials who stepped up to leadership positions, which made them a target in many ways. And yes, you're right. Average everyday farmers and ranchers who came in to talk about agriculture realities in Iraq and the risks that they took to do so. It was um, very sobering and added to the significance of the trip and our belief that we needed to to be successful to, to make sure that something came of the meetings, I guess. Saddam Hussein had been deposed by that time, and uh, we were in a situation where that they had a government, and the president of Iraq was there and met with Secretary Johans. They allowed me to go in during their meeting and get pictures of that. And that kind of began me shooting pictures of everything possible to document the trip, as you said, as we went through the entirety of the day. Mm -hmm. President Maliki. That was significant. I don't know whether they exchanged much other than a photo opportunity, but they did talk for a little bit of time. Any idea if they really uh, engaged in anything of, uh, of memory? Oh, I think there was a substantive conversation about the PRTs that we were sending and specifically what President Maliki thought was the most value that they could bring, how else we could support them. And similarly, when we then met with their trade ambassador, you know, they signed, we signed a memorandum of agreement talking about our cooperation going forward and the support that we would offer. The gentleman who signed that agreement with us could speak English perfectly well, As I recall, he was an Iraqi who had gone back, 
and uh, he risked himself. In fact, he was attacked after we were there and injured, um, but lived. But he um, was the one who accepted the agreement where that basically the extension service and others could go in and be able to assist. Um, they would, of course, be protected by American soldiers. And I actually knew some of the soldiers afterwards who did those missions to help the Iraqis start rebuilding their agriculture. And that was our, that was our key area that we were involved in. Correct. And it really highlights, you know, we talk a lot about how food security is national security or is part of national security. And I think a lot of Americans don't really understand what we mean by that. And it really only takes one glance at some other countries and, and what has happened as a result of Russia invading Ukraine. And it really brings to light what we mean by that, just how important it is to have a safe and reliable food supply if you want to keep the peace and maintain security. To give people a little feel for this time in the embassy, it was an electric environment. And I recall one guy who was showing us around and uh, helping us out. And I, he was in the U.S. military, middle-aged man. And I said, uh, uh, are you active duty? He said, no, I'm National Guard. I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm a banker in Topeka, Kansas. And that was what he had done in his career and what he was going to go back to, but he was over there at the time. So there were a number of people who were called up at that period. We had another bomb that went off. It was a mortar that hit in the parking lot. And that's the one you spoke of earlier. Do you want to comment on what your thoughts were when you knew that it happened? Well, seeing the billowing smoke nearby definitely gave gave me pause. And I think anyone in their in their right minds who isn't accustomed to being in a war zone would have the same reaction. By the same token, there had been a couple of other incidents and as you mentioned, part of the delegation was attacked the same day. So that was part of the reality of the mission we accepted. I know that uh we were expecting the national media to come out to the embassy to interview the secretary, and they did not show up. And we later on found that a bomber had hit the gate of the embassy, and so the military shut down any civilians traveling across the city at that point to it. And uh, we got back in the helicopter a little later on and uh, flew over and had a chance to talk with uh, some of the brass there at the military base. And then I think what Secretary Joanne's enjoyed most, having dinner with uh, the soldiers from Iowa and Nebraska who joined us. Yes, that was really fantastic and, and a, a touching time. I think then Secretary Johans felt much the same about having the utmost respect for our servicemen and women and getting the chance to be there with them and really sit down and not only enjoy conversation, but express our deep appreciation meant a lot. One of the uh, things that I took with me was some beef sticks. There was a big push by the cattle industry to send these beef sticks over that um, are very flavorful and uh, not exactly jerky, but good stuff and that it was from American beef, and it was being sent to the soldiers. And so I asked them, I said, have you gotten any of these beef sticks in the past? And this young man said, yeah, we have. And I said, how do you like them? 
And he looked at me and he said, we don't eat them. They're too valuable. And I asked him what he meant. And he said, we trade them. We trade them for all kinds of things that we need. And he said, they're good, but they're, they're too valuable to eat. <laughs> In World War II, WHO radio that I was working at at the time had war reporters and they took turns going to the war zone in Germany primarily and, and across Europe and reporting in, of course, that was the only news in many cases people were getting. And one of them was Herb Plambeck, who was the first farm broadcaster at WHO. He had gone there in 1936. He was a legend in Till his death in 2000, but he took an ear of corn with him and every soldier that he found from Iowa, he would give them one kernel of that corn just as a memory of home. So I took about 20 years of corn, I guess, with me since we could carry a whole lot more. We had a C-17 for God's sake. And uh, I passed some of those out and I think they were somewhat appreciated, but these people were not in foxholes, you know, they were, they, they weren't as much in duress as the ones in World War II had been, but I didn't know what to do. I just thought I was going to do something and throw it against the wall and see if it worked. But that evening, uh, we finished up with that dinner and we headed back to the airplane. And when we got back to the airplane, same aircraft, as far as I know, it was empty and it was like a cavern. Uh, we played football inside of it and you really, you couldn't throw a football the full length of that airplane without hitting the ceiling. You simply That's couldn't right. do it. And of course we were all relieved. I think we, we were now going home, but Secretary Johans was smiling more than he had been during the day. It was a cavernous place that stunned me as much as anything, I guess, of the day is how big that aircraft was. It was huge. There's no doubt about it. I, I refined my throwing skills, I think, on that trip. Did you then get some sleep? Uh, <laughs> I did. Seats as we went on back uh, and flew back to Injure Lake Air Force Base? You even remember that detail, huh? I did. I had stayed up most of the night organizing the Secretary's remarks for the various meetings, so I didn't actually, I don't think, even go to bed the night before, so I took the opportunity to sack out. Well, uh, I took several pictures of you when you did. Uh, no, I didn't. I did take one picture of you. Terry uh, is a very pretty lady. She has nice hair. And uh, they gave her a helmet. And she put it on for a moment. And I took her picture. And I was threatened by you, I, I think, a couple of times if I ever showed that picture to anyone. Are you, uh, are you over that yet? Oh, I was kidding. You can show the picture if you want to show the picture. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, I put mine on with a microphone and I thought about using it and I thought it was overly dramatic for me. But, you know, when we got shot at and uh, they dropped a mortar on us, they blew up the gate. I can understand why people wear personal protective equipment in military combat. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, back out of there, we flew back home, and you went right back to work. We only had a few hours. We went right back to work. I was filing stories and uh, turning over uh, pictures to you guys if you wanted them. I used some for uh, the website, and uh, 
We were very, very tired. I remember that. We finished that trip. Thank you, Terry, for talking about those things with me because I just wanted to bring them back to life um, because my memories are so strong of these things. Except for names, I think I can remember everything on the entire trip. It was a very impactful trip. I will agree with you. Let's pause for a minute to talk with Taylor Parker, who is the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, is there a link between those people who have a type of diabetes and a potential for hearing loss? The answer is yes. If you are a type 1 or a type 2 diabetic, you're twice as likely to have a hearing loss. If you're a pre-diabetic, you're 30% higher than those with, you know, normal levels of glucose. Think about, you know, our body being all connected. You know, everything interacts, everything works together, and proper blood flow is is required and, and it helps keep a cochlea. The cochlea is a tiny little snail looking um apparatus that is part of the hearing process. Inside of the cochlea, there's 15,000 tiny little hairs that need to be in good condition to get a proper signal to the brain from the ears for hearing loss. When you have high glucose levels, we lose the elasticity for our vessels and proper blood flow. They shrink and and we can't get that good proper uh, blood flow up to the cochlea as as well as you know all the other extremities in our body when you know when our feet things like that and hearing loss is the second leading health epidemic in the United States only behind heart disease everyone talks about all these other conditions heart disease is very similar in in the standpoint of proper blood flow all those things so diabetes has that huge piece whether you're type 1, type 2, or even pre-diabetic, has a huge role in good hearing or having a you know potential untreated hearing loss. Thank you, Taylor. You can schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. Call them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. Let's rejoin my guest, Terry Moore, who is now Director of Communications for the American Farm Bureau Federation, following her years working for Governor and then Secretary of Agriculture and then Senator Mike Johans from Nebraska. Now, we'll get back home. I'd like to talk about you from that point forward. You stayed as long as uh, Secretary Johans stayed, and then uh, he went back home and ran for Senator and won that race, where did that put you? I got a call from the White House asking me to come join their communications team, and I did so. And from there went on when Secretary Johans became Senator Johans. He invited me to come be his chief of staff in the Senate, which I also did. So I kind of bounced around D.C. a bit and then did a stint consulting before I landed with American Farm Bureau. At Farm Bureau, you know, that's a peach of a job. I know people that have been that job all the way back to the 70s, and I think you were a very good choice for that job. It's not one that just kind of keeps track of what's going on. You are pushing the envelope all the time in Farm Bureau to be able to see which way agriculture is going and leading. You must have a dramatic and uh, dynamic daily life in Farm Bureau. It's busy. I I won't, uh, I'll grant you that. Uh, there's, there's not, I've not had a, a boring day since I started. Um, but it's really mostly because 
I see great potential in our role as the voice of agriculture and in building a stronger agricultural network to be able to tell ag- agriculture story, to take control of a narrative that for a long time, I'm going to say that we didn't do a very good job of, of doing, we of engaging publicly. And we kind of let the activists tell the agriculture story from their perspective. So I'm, I'm very pleased that not only our organization, but I think throughout the agriculture sector, that realization of the importance of engaging is top of mind. And we're doing get, getting better and better at it. Tell me about Mr. Duvall, Zippy Duvall, as uh, your boss and as the president of Farm Bureau. He's a great guy. He is as down to earth as they come. He has his own farm in Georgia. You know, many, um, virtually all of our leaders are real dirt under the fingernails farmers. And so he divides his time. He's on the road a lot, but he's also in D.C. a portion of the time and still trying to maintain his own farm. But he really brings the perspective of the farmer, I want to say, is passionate about that. When he travels, he's constantly collecting stories so that when he goes to testify on the Hill or goes to meet with members of Congress or leaders, just the other day, he went and had coffee with Secretary Vilsack. And he was able to convey firsthand stories right from the field of some of the things happening, impacting farmers and ranchers things that we feel strongly need to be addressed. And that's really President Duval's strength. What do you think is going to be the the challenge that comes front and center to American agriculture and Farm Bureau being a part of that uh, in the decade ahead? Uh, do you see that uh, population uh, growth uh, or that uh, government uh, intervention or other things that I'm not thinking of or mentioning will be the ones we're most concerned about. Oh gosh. You know, I think certainly the issues you mentioned, there is no shortage of challenges facing agriculture, right? But I also feel like sometimes we get so focused on those challenges that we forget to celebrate the tenacity and resilience of agriculture. You know, farmers and ranchers are no strangers to volatility and challenges. They often experience more of those in one season than many of us experience in a lifetime. I have every confidence that American agriculture will successfully prevail. But I think we also need to keep in mind there is growing public interest in where food comes from and and very little knowledge, to be honest, with with less than 2% of the population now actively engaged in agriculture we have a big job reaching out to that other 98%. That's really, really important if we're going to maintain. And here's here's one of the shining stars that farmers and ranchers should really be proud of. The public trust in agriculture in farmers and ranchers is higher than in any other profession. It hovers around 85%. Not elected leaders, not scientists, not professors, not doctors. No one enjoys that level of trust. And farmers and ranchers should really take great pride in that. I will share with you that we, we've done a number of public opinion surveys. And another statistic is the American public trusts farmers and ranchers to take care of the environment more than anyone else, more than state government, more than federal government, and more than environmental advocacy groups. So when we get downtrodden or think 
those loud activist voices are winning. That's just not the case. That trust level is there, but it's also important that we continue to earn it, right? Agriculture is on a journey of continuous improvement, and that's something to be proud of too. We're doing more with less. We're protecting resources better than we ever have, and we're caring for animals better than we have. But there's always room for improvement. And and that's our message as, as we navigate all of the challenges facing agriculture. Terry, uh, agriculture is families, men and women, children that are working on the land, giving their all for it. Um, but up until a generation ago at the most, women really didn't get an equal vote in many of things or given opportunities that men had. You're the first woman who has been the communication director for the American Farm Bureau. Do you feel like that the glass ceiling is totally broken? I don't know if I would say totally broken, Ken, but I've also, that's never been a focus of mine. My focus is on putting my head down and working hard. I'd rather not distinguish You know, I hope I'm not here because I'm a woman. I hope I'm here because I've demonstrated that I'm willing to work hard and maybe have a little bit of strategic insight. But I will also tell you there's a lot of conversation going on in agriculture, as I'm sure you know, about the fact that we we don't have a lot of women leaders yet. More and more women are taking over operations on the farm. But in terms of leadership of agricultural organizations, that's still a very small minority. You know, in 1985, uh, Joanne Smith became the president of the American National Cattlemen's Association. And she's from Florida. She's from a ranching family, very smart, very eloquent lady. And one of the things she would say is, you know, I'm just like anybody else. When I take this job on the inside issues, I can negotiate with them. I can, I can talk with my board members. But she said the beauty of the job right now is that I can get on TV shows, I can get on non-farm media because I'm a woman in this job. And she did a very good job of it. But she realized that at that moment, she was so unusual that people wanted her just for that, and then she could tell her story. I want that to go away. You know, I have friends my age who are basically the pioneer women who got into agricultural broadcasting, got into a number of areas. You're a generation and a half younger than I am. And I would like to stop asking the question that I asked earlier, how is it to be a woman in this job? I'd like for that to just go away. But I don't think we're there yet. But I do think we're closer when we have people like you take these jobs. Well, thanks for that. And I agree with you. I would like for that not to be the focus as well. And and we're getting there. Terry, good luck. Um, we'll just follow you for the next several years on uh, how you and Farm Bureau are doing and all the things that are coming down the pike. And may you be able to see them coming before they get here. That's quite a challenge in agriculture, as you are serving now as Vice President of Communications for the American Farm Bureau. Thank you for talking to me. It has been delightful to catch up with you, Ken, and to reminisce a little bit. And thanks for all you've done for agriculture. You're you're quite a legend in the business. <laughs> Just not a good one. Thank you. <laughs> Hardly. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. See you next week.
for another episode of Better Than Nothing.